Thank you very much and welcome. I'm Father Mitch Packle. Welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Our guest has been around the world a lot, but he is here from Steubenville, Ohio, and he's here to help us better understand what it actually means to be holy. Our Lord tells us to, quote, be holy for I am holy, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We'll trace the meaning of holiness through sacred scripture and reveal how God gradually transmits his holiness to his people through creation, right worship, and more. Ultimately, our Lord transforms us through the sharing of his divine life. So please welcome the president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a professor of biblical theology and the new evangelization at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And he is the author of lots of books, including a brand new one, Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. Please welcome a good friend of the network and myself, Dr. Scott Hahn. Great to be with you, Scott, dear friend. great to have with you. Good to have you yeah. here. And it's um, a great thing. I, I like the name, the title of your book, Holy is His Name. It re reminded me of some of the arguments that have been going on throughout the church and still going on in many denominations, less so Catholicism, about trying to change God from Father to father, mother, or all sorts of other things. And your title brings out, holiness is in the very name of God. That's right. This is not something that is your silly putty toy to play with, but it's the name of God is holy because he is holy. Right. And we know the phrase, you alone are holy, tu yes. salus sanctus. And that gets right at the heart of the issue because that which is essential to God is not being creator because that would make him dependent upon creatures. It is his holiness. Yes. And so if essential property of God is holiness, then you alone are holy, you alone can hallow us. And so the idea that God has made us for himself, that God has made us to become holy. I mean, we know the passages like Hebrews 12, 14, strive for holiness for without it, no one will see God. Mm -hmm. So it is the essential thing that we need to get to where we were made to go. And likewise, we also know from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, St. Paul teaches, this is the will of God for you. Wait for it. Who should I marry? What should I study? What job should I take? This is the will of God for you, namely your holiness, your sanctification. And so you recognize then that God as a father doesn't want to kind of dominate our lives and play this kind of secret game, you know, crack the code of my will for you. No, this is the will of God. You have a lot of freedom to fall in love with me and others, but your holiness is that one thing. So if holiness is the essential purpose of our life, and in sacred scripture we have this essential tool, you have a perfect match because the only book that is divinely inspired has as its central message holiness. 
God's holiness, especially in the Old Testament, and then through Christ imparting that to us in the Holy Spirit. From Pentecost on, it's not as though the Holy Spirit was absent in the Old Covenant, but the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is what is released in the New. So you have a relative absence of the term saints in the Old Testament. One rabbi whom I quote, Rabbi Joshua Berman says, nobody's called a saint in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Nope. But he's clearly implying the contrast with the new, where even the sloppy new converts in Corinth were called saints. Not just called to holiness like Israel was, but actually, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Yes. And so, you know, we, we see the scriptures and we kind of blur the lines and we don't realize that the promises that were given in the old are fulfilled in the new in a way that surpassed the highest hopes of the Hebrew people. In the, in the Old Testament, you'll, some English translations will use the word saints, but it's not correct. That's right. It's Especially the word chassidim, right. which is someone who lives out the chesed love, that, which is the love that belongs right. to a covenant relationship. Right. They're and faithful, they're loyal. They're obedient, but yes. they don't, that doesn't rise to the level of holiness. Holiness and, and righteousness are clearly interrelated, yes. but they're not interchangeable. Yes. You know, holiness is the province of the high priest in the temple, whereas righteousness, justice, this is the province of the king in the palace and, and the court as well. And it's also in business, you have to have righteous weights and scales. That's right. You know, in the law court, the judges have to exercise righteousness. And someone who is acquitted in court is called a righteous person, but not a saint. Right. That, that it, it's, this is something that uh, is very different. And I, we talked earlier today how I had argued with one of the Catholic translations. It's been changed and improved. But uh, I was arguing with one of the bishops who in, was in charge of it. They had translated the word righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount as holiness. And, and this bishop said, well, it's about righteousness, holiness, it's about the same. I started pounding on the table that it's right. not. Right. Holiness is another quality. And it's something that is as necessary for salvation according to Scripture. That's right. I mean, when you look at the law of the covenant, we find it obviously in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. We see the two tables. The first three deal with the primacy of God, mm -hmm. the worship of God, calling upon His name, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Mm -hmm. And it's the only time holiness occurs in the Ten Commandments. And then the last seven commandments deal with righteousness. That is, the vertical relationship we have with God is inseparable from the horizontal life that we live with others. But the, you know, it's also interesting that the first table of the law, though it only has three commandments, is twice as long in word count and in verses than the next seven. And so when Jesus is asked the question, what is the most important commandment? He captures the essence of holiness when he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like, but it's second to love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19, 18. So it's all there in the law of Moses, but it's a kind of hierarchy. Love is the 
essence of the law, but the love of God comes before the love of neighbor. So we love yes. God more than ourselves. We love our neighbor as ourselves, but only and always for the love of God. We don't just treat them the way they want to be treated. We want, we want to relate to them in righteousness so that we can get them closer to God just as we are striving for that as well. Well, one of the key elements for me, I, when I'm preparing couples for marriage, I always say to them, you need to love God more than you love this woman or you love this man. Right. Because if you love each other or your children ahead of God, you will expect them to be as good as God. Right. And they're not. I mean, you're backing yourself. You're backing yourself into a form of idolatry yeah. when you become that dependent upon a human when you need to be that dependent because, in fact, we are that dependent yes. upon the Lord God. You know, this is really important when you read the whole Bible. In Genesis, it's 50 chapters long, but kadosh, the Hebrew word for holiness, only occurs once in Genesis 2, verse 3, when the seventh day is sanctified. Right. And then in the next chapter, after our first father fails, it isn't just disobedience, it's a kind of desecration because he possessed the breath of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, what theologians call sanctifying grace. He falls not just from rectitude or uprightness, he falls from holiness. Yes. And so for the rest of the book, Nobody else is ever called a saint, not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah's righteous, others are faithful, but the catastrophic results of the fall are vastly underestimated by most people and overlooked even by biblical scholars. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you move from Genesis to the 40 chapters in Exodus, there's a veritable explosion of kadosh and the variance, as you know, mm -hmm. the word for holiness, take off your shoes for it is holy ground that you mm -hmm. stand upon. If you hear my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be a holy nation the vestments, the altar, the ark, the tabernacle, the sacrifices. 98 times in just 40 chapters, holiness is used. But it's a curious thing that nobody, well, everybody's called to holiness, but nobody's ever called a saint. And there's something about uh, that that's very important about the holiness of Mount Sinai. Right. And of the sacred vessels in the temple and the Holy of Holies and all these holy places and things, that holiness is also dangerous. That if you touch Mount Sinai, whether you're an animal or a human, you had to be stoned to death or shot with arrows because you got holiness on you. It's a power that's very dangerous and the people who punish you can't even touch you. Right. That's why they have to stone you. You're, so, you're, you've got holiness on you and it's, I oftentimes compare Old Testament sense of that holiness of place and of thing as being like re nuclear radi uh, fallout. Right. If you get it on you, you have to get it off right away because it's, it's powerful. Right. But dangerous. You know, in Leviticus 10.10, you have the job description for the priests. That is to distinct, teach the people to distinguish between the holy and the common. Right. And the clean and the unclean. Because that which is sacred is not opposed to that which is secular. It is only opposed to what is sinful. And so there is a distinction, but for the purpose of uniting the temporal and the eternal, the secular and the sacred, working for six days, but consecrating the fruit of your labor in the liturgy conducted by the priest, but in Leviticus 9, 
Aaron learned the hard way because his two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer unholy fire and are struck dead. Yeah, you know, and so in fact, I used to tell Mother Angelica about some of these stories, uh, that liturgical abuse in the Old Testament, you got the death penalty. Right. Just she, liked yeah. she liked that. She liked that. Well, I'm not quite there, but it's important <laughs> to recognize that we distinguish holiness from righteousness to unite them, but you unite them only by coordinating them in a subordinate relation. The king is under the priest, which is unique to Israel. Yes. And in the creation account, the idea of the Sabbath, instead of just celebrating the kingship of the gods, something peculiar to Israel. And so when you see King Saul getting impatient for the priest Samuel to come on time to offer the sacrifice, the fact that Saul intrudes into the priest's office like Gentile kings would have done, you know, he is forfeiting the kingdom as a result of that in seconds in 1 Samuel 13. Likewise, the great vision that Isaiah has in chapter 6 where, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his glory is filling this temple that is heavenly a temple. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. The seraphim are chanting kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. Now, I kind of wish we had love, love, love or mercy, mercy, mercy. Hebrew does not have superlatives. So it's holy, it's holier, it's the holiest because God alone possesses this And not until later do we discover exactly what that means because the revelation of the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit reveals who God is from all eternity apart from creating and redeeming the world and the human race. So Isaiah's vision occurs in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, how did he die? Well, you know, in 2 Chronicles 26, he was so successful politically, militarily, economically, he was probably wearing a cap saying, make Israel great again, because that's what he did. He he was the 10th in the line of David, reigning for 50 years, and he was so full of himself that he was sure, quite sure, that the Lord would approve of him leaving the palace, entering the temple, and proceeding on into the holy place to the altar of incense. And Azariah, the priests are shouting, don't do this. And he goes up to the altar of incense to offer incense himself. Suddenly on his forehead is leprosy. uncleanness, whereas on the forehead of the high priest is the turban reads holy to the Lord. And so he's taken out and he dies the rest of his days in a kind of makeshift leper colony for the kings. So when Isaiah says in the year that King Uzziah died, that is not just a time marker. It's reminding us of of why he died and why Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in a land full of people of uncleanness. And the uncleanness is removed by the angel taking what? Well, the charcoal from the altar of incense. So all of these things converge so that it's evoking Uzziah is not the king. The Lord God is the king. He wasn't a holy priest, but God is. And so the altar of incense becomes the means by which Isaiah is commissioned for 50 years of prophetic ministry. And one of the things that's uh, a good example of what I was saying before is the story of King Uzziah that he got too close to the holy place. He was touching something holy, and the power of the holiness gave him leprosy. It made him unclean because he got to a place he shouldn't be. Even the high priest had very great limitations on what he could do. Only he could offer incense in the Holy of Holies. And they would tie a rope around his ankle 
in case he sinned. Like Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's oldest sons. Right. Yeah. That, that they, He's not going to walk out and bless. You're going to drag him out. And right, he will because the be other defiled. priests couldn't go into the Holy of Holies to get his corpse. See, this is the kind of God we worship. And he's gentle. He exhibits friendship through Jesus. But you alone are holy, and not any less, but more. And Aquinas nailed it when he described the essence of holiness is the essence of God, but it is the perfection of love. Now, perfect love casts out all fear, but wait a minute, <laughs> my love ain't perfect. And so there's room for fear. The fear of the Lord is not the servile fear that a slave has afraid of getting caught and punished. It's the fear that a beloved child has afraid of offending the father, mm -hmm. because that would break my heart as well mm -hmm. as his. Mm -hmm. And that kind of love perfects us. You know, so when you line up, be holy, as we read in Leviticus 18 to mm -hmm. be perfect, as we read in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, or be merciful, as we read in Luke 6, it's sort of like, eh, 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 we're all going to push the third button. But the fact <laughs> is, they go together. When yes. God's mercy patiently helps us. It is his mercy that perfects us. And it's his love, his perfection of love that ends up making us holy as well. So something that is in our creed that would never be in the Old Testament creed is I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of what? Wait for it, saints. Because Which is the, means the holy ones. That's right. That's Daniel 7 means. is the one place in the Hebrew Bible where you hear about saints, but it's because of what the Son of Man does after the incarnation, his death and resurrection, ascending on the clouds of glory to the ancient of days. He gives this kingdom, this worldwide everlasting kingdom to what? The saints of the, the Most High. Used seven times in the second half of Daniel 7, or 6 if I recall. But Which I mean, is it's actually a not even in Hebrew. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's in Aramaic. Aramaic. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't recognize just how it is that in Isaiah's vision, the Sanctus is only sung by angels because the population of heaven is exclusively angelic. Flip to the new, and when Jesus ascends into heaven, it isn't a solo flight. He's taking captivity captive, as Paul tells the Ephesians quoting from the Psalms. He repopulates heaven, so the only other place we hear Sanctus, holy, 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 in Revelation 4, verse 8, and it's not just being chanted by the angels, but by the martyrs, the elders, and all of these saints, saints who have ascended into heaven so that heaven is repopulated and we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. All of the souls of the faithful depart in the Old Testament who were ready to go, went yeah. and inhabit heaven in a way that were like, yawn, you know, come on, so what? Read the scriptures in terms of the plot and the drama unfolds in a way that should take our breath away instead of eliciting a yawn. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I think that there's more of a yawn is that the mood in the church since the late 60s yes. is one of bringing the sacred down to a common level that we can relate to. We tried to make the liturgy something that comes from our experience rather than focusing on the holiness of the liturgy that raises us up to God's right. level. In the Eastern Church, it's very clear that the liturgy is meant to lift you up to heaven. It elevates us. It divinizes us. Whereas 
the mood in the Western church has been to bring the liturgy down to a level we can relate to and make sure that it comes from us. At the same time, I think you would agree with me that that is not really a part of the living tradition of the West. No. It's the post-conciliar attempt exactly. to democratize, to level the hierarchy at the same level as the laity and to kind of create an egalitarian, you know, we the people approach. See, that's why I called it a mood. Right. It's not a doctrine, it's not Catholic doctrine in the West, but it is the mood. The Vatican Council never said to do that. Right. Never. Likewise, in the East, there's a greater emphasis upon the fact that salvation is nothing less than divinization. It's not just being forgiven so you can leave the courtroom as an acquitted, pardoned criminal. It's not just um, healing that comes from a hospital, the treatment of the medicine of God's mercy, and we're fit as a fiddle, we're well again. No, it is an elevation to share in the ranks of the angels and to be made what? Partakers of the divine nature. You can't be serious. And yet in 2 Peter 1, 4, Peter is dead serious. I mean, this is what it means for us, not just to be saved from sin, like Israel was saved from Egyptian bondage. It really isn't, this is really the thesis of my book, Holy is His Name. It's what we're saved for. Right. We're saved for communion. We're saved for covenant, but the essence of the covenant is holiness. Covenant is a shell that needs to be filled, and it's filled precisely by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And something um, that uh, I think is worth noting, in the Semitic roots for holiness, kadosh, and the, the same root is in Arabic, right. Aramaic, Syriac, Hebrew, all these Akkadian, Semitic languages, right. Akkadian, and it has that double sense to it in, in Akkadian, which is the language of Mesopotamia, the Babylonians and the Syrians. Right. It has this sense of being separate from the common stuff. Right. To set apart. Right. You're set apart. And at the same time, it also means to be on fire. And you see that going on where the flaming bush is the fire, but this is holy ground. You don't even wear shoes here. But it's I don't a know fire what you've been stepping that in doesn't consume shoes. the bush because it is a love that doesn't destroy, right. but transforms. And you know, I, I quote Rabbi John Levinson, professor of the Hebrew Bible at Harvard, who points out that from ancient times, the Hebrew word for wedding or marriage is kiddushin. Mm -hmm. Why? Because she's set apart and there's a flame. Mm -hmm. And this should purify us, not defile us. But there really is an earthly analogy that captures something of the passionate love of the perfection of divine love that shows us that there is a wedding at the beginning in the first two chapters of the Bible, and then there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding in the last the two end. chapters right. of the Bible too. Right. But this shows us that, you know, what you call love, that ain't love. God is a consuming fire, but that Fire is what is intended to purify our, our love, which is just a mixed up matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this uh, uh, holiness has as its purpose restoring us to Genesis 1.26. Right. That we image. are to be made in the image and likeness of God. We're made that way. Christ restores us. The fire of holiness purifies us from sin, but it also sets us apart from the common. 
this is not reducing us to be like everybody in the world. That's, right. that's a satanic. You know, the idea of being restored to the image and likeness of God is just right as rain. And at the same time, you know, we were made in the image of God, whereas Jesus as the eternal son is the image and right. likeness of the invisible God. So we're not just restored, we're also elevated now so that if our first father hadn't failed, we would have been well off. But because he did, we can hear Felix Culpa at the Easter Vigil because we, it's the happy fault of our first father because we end up better off in Christ, who is the image, than we would have been in Adam if he hadn't fallen. Gee, I wonder if God knew that in advance. Apart from the incarnation, we cannot become holy as we are now in Christ. You know, and this brings you to the conclusion, the practical conclusion. The book is divided up into 13 chapters, half in the old, half in the new. But it really focuses on, at the end on the practical ways, the steps that we can take to be holy. And if righteousness is something that we can do with the help of our neighbors, but holiness is only something that God can do, then you can see why in the saints, Holiness is not about getting bigger and better, smarter and stronger and richer. It is about getting smaller mm -hmm. and closer to our Lord, like Our Lady, mm -hmm. who is talking about how the Almighty has done great things for me. Well, yeah, she's Holy Mary because the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, making her something that exceeded anything that you find even in the creation of the first Eve. Yeah, that, that phrase that she magnifies the Lord. Oh. This, I, I love that phrase. When I, I use this in my radio show today, I uh, talk about how if you have a light in a real dark room, it lightens it up. But if you put a mirror under that light, it's even brighter. Right. A clean mirror increases the light. She magnifies the Lord that his light flowing into the purity of Our Lady is even brighter than the light shining in our darkness. That's right. part of her role. Yeah, I mean, she is in possession of the fullness of grace, which is the Holy Spirit from the moment of her conception. And we can recite this like lines, like Catholic talking points, the same way a parrot can say, Polly want a cracker. But like she did in Luke 2, verse 19, ponder these things in her heart. So the fullness of the Holy Spirit is meant to enable us to ponder the Word of God and to really allow it to lead us to go beyond the visible and the finite, to discover the invisible and the infinite. It's closer to us than we are to ourselves, even though it's wholly other, even though God is so great and so transcendent that the highest of the angels is more like a speck of dust than he is like the Almighty. And yet God's desire is to elevate us, to share in the eternal life and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So heaven is not just where we go to catch a glimpse of the Trinity. The tri-universe that will be the new creation will be living, sharing the very life of the Father, yeah. Son, and Holy yeah. Spirit. And this is something then, you know, what do people, you know, have to start reorienting their life to do in order to accept this all because the holiness is a grace right this is Pure something gift. god gives us right but how do you get yourself open to that grace of holiness 
Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways, but I think going back to the beginning, we can see the institution of the Sabbath as the sign of holiness. And then the legislation that comes in the first table, you remember the Sabbath, not by recalling it Saturday in the old, Sunday in the new, mm -hmm. but you commemorate, zakar, you mm -hmm. celebrate remember, the way yeah. we do birthdays and anniversaries. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And how do you do it? By working for six days, but not just going to the sanctuary, the tabernacle, or mass for an hour. No, you rest the entire day. It isn't about building big altars, though. That's beautiful. It's about ceasing from your labor. You, your spouse, your sons, your daughters, even your manservants and maidservants and the sojourners in the gates, not to mention the oxen and asses. And it's the longest of the commandments. And one of the things about that, no other ancient society had a Sabbath rest. Right. Did not exist anywhere. The rich could take a day off anytime they wanted. But the idea of the slaves taking a day off didn't happen. If you reduce it to law, then you act as though man was made for the Sabbath, like the mm -hmm. Pharisees said. Mm -hmm. If you reduce it to love or you elevate it, then you can understand why Jesus corrected it by saying, no, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's meant to liberate the slaves, the sojourners. And so it's for all of the family, but the extended family, even those who didn't have kinship with you. And so it's a day not primarily of lazy leisure. It's a day of worship and contemplation. And it's not just a day, it's every seven days. It's not just every year. It's the seventh year, the year of Jubilee. It was a way of creating a society that would be ordered to terribly unproductive time spent, but a supernatural kind of productivity whereby we realize we're not made to be creatures, employees, mere slaves of God. We are made to do, we are made to become something that we can't do even if we work 24, six. No, by the fact that we celebrate the Sabbath day and it's the sign of the covenant, we're basically saying to God, we're imitating you in our creativity, but you have to do a work that is not a creative work. You have to do a work that is a covenantal work. You have to do a work which is a fatherly work by transforming us as servants into sons. When Jesus heals on the Sabbath in John 5, and they ask him why, he doesn't say, well, I couldn't make it back tomorrow. You know, I had to move on. No, he healed on the Sabbath, but not in spite of the fact that it was the Sabbath, but precisely because he was doing something that would fulfill the Sabbath. And so he says, because my father is working still. It's like, this is why they sought the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but called God Father, thus making himself equal to God. No, you missed the point. The Sabbath is the sign of a covenant, which is not a contract. It's not for a factory, it's for a family. This is yours, that is mine, that's a contract. I am yours, you are mine, with God as the cement who binds us and makes us one. That is how the, the logic of love is the only thing that explains all 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. Yeah. A, a covenant establishes a relationship. Right. A contract gets services for... Transactional. It's transactional, commercial. Right. Yeah, for profit. Right. This is for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. It isn't self-interest. It is self-giving. Right, right. And this sense of holiness that we can seek, I, I fear, uh, is not spoken about that much in no, the church today. It's not spoken much. It's not spoken clearly. It's not spoken practically. You know, I think back, it's the 30th anniversary of our book, Rome, Sweet Home. 
It's the 20th anniversary of a book I wrote called The Lamb's Supper, The Masses Heaven on Earth. And there is a kind of narrative arc in my writings that led me to recognize that we have not, I mean, we recognize the universal call to holiness. We all affirm we've got to be saints for without it, we won't see God. Right. But to distinguish and to clarify why God alone can make us holy and why the Holy Spirit through the Holy Catholic Church, especially through the seven sacraments, most particularly the Holy Eucharist. But this is why I dedicated the book to my own son, Father Jeremiah Hahn, because almost a, two years ago, he got holy orders. And I got to see my natural son become my supernatural father and to celebrate the holy sacrifice of the mass, to give me holy communion and to affirm with me, we are here for one thing and that is to become holy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a 12-part study program that uh, is associated with your book, Holy Is Its Name. Yeah, am I and, glad you mentioned this? Uh, and it begins February 22nd. Ash and Wednesday. And it goes Ash Wednesday. Good time to start thinking about getting holy. Uh, and it goes all the way through April 16th. If you're interested, you can go to St. Paul Center. Dot com. So stpaulcenter.com slash holy study for more information. Because this would, seeking holiness would be a great way to do your Lenten penance. And not just as giving up stuff, which is good. You know, it, it, everybody talks about how to diet without being hungry. You know, <laughs> we should do that big commercial item. And, but to focus on holiness in Lent, this is the goal. And every Wednesday, we're going to have two free installments. So it's going to go 12 installments, six weeks. Every Wednesday after Ash Wednesday, we're going to have two come out. It's going to be free live streaming through the St. Paul Center. Uh, Emmaus Road is the publishing arm of the St. Paul Center. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary. Cool. We're building a new headquarters, but we got a workbook, a study guide for individuals, for groups, for parishes as well. I am so excited that this is the latest and the greatest of our Journey Through Scripture study program. Cool. All right. Well, we have to take a little break, um, and we'll be back in a couple minutes with your questions and your comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, I welcome you back with some sad news. Uh, a guest that's been on this show and one that I've known actually since 94 uh, has died. Uh, we've sent our prayers out for the family and friends and for the repose of the soul of George Cardinal Pell from Australia. He died yesterday evening in Rome following hip replacement surgery. He was on the show with me just a couple years ago, 
discussing his three-volume prison journal book series. It is part of the live coverage of Pope Benedict XVI's memorial events in Rome just this last week. He was a really great friend of the network, and the church will sorely miss him. Uh, this Australian cardinal was 81 years old, and uh, we certainly want to include him in the, our prayers and his family and friends and the people of Australia. All right. Are you ready for some questions? Fire away. Let's start Go. off with Joyce in Connecticut. Joyce, what can Hi. we do for Hi. you? Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What can we do for you this evening? Well, um, yes, I'm in the Harford Archdiocese in Connecticut, and um, I understand the American bishops wanting Catholics to understand the Eucharist, and there's a push, big push right now for that and for Eucharistic uh, adoration. Uh, I have noticed that some Eucharistic adorations are more about setting a mood by bringing a contemporary flair uh, for adoration, such as, uh, say, pink and white light streaming onto the Blessed Sacrament, fog, uh, and guitar music, etc. As a teen that grew up in the 60s and 70s, we went through this before, and it didn't turn out too well. And then I also heard you talking about, um, you know, uh, bringing the sacrament to a common level, uh, as Dr. Hahn uh, just expressed uh, about 10 minutes ago. And isn't this bringing uh, the sacred to a common level? And Thank I would like to uh, just listen to your comments. Thank you, Joyce. Yeah, I mean, it's a legitimate concern. It's a great question. Thank you, Joyce, for calling in. You know, I would say this, that whatever it takes to get people to renew their Eucharistic faith, to really intensify Eucharistic devotion through adoration and that sort of thing. I mean, Pope St. John Paul II called for nothing less than Eucharistic amazement. You know, and so whatever it takes that is fitting, and I think that's where we have to listen closely to Scripture because you have a divine revelation of prescriptions for how to conduct holy worship. On the other hand, I also want to be open to the fact that, uh, you know, these lights and the guitars and this sort of thing weren't used back in the late 60s and early 70s to cultivate Eucharistic devotion for the most part. And so even if it isn't entirely fitting, even if it's wrong, I would say, we're erring in the right direction, you know, by having lights and that kind of music. I would like to adjust the, the dial. I'd like to adjust the screen here to initiate, to introduce young people to the living tradition that is sacred. It's ever ancient, it's ever new, so it's not just something old-fashioned. It's not something archaic. And I, I would say this, that in my experience, Young families with lots of kids, and the kids themselves, especially as they grow up, are looking at a world that is so stripped and secularized to a point of extreme, they're, they're just hungering for the transcendent. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't like we just simply have to accommodate the sacred to the secular forms of worship. There is a place for enculturation, as they describe it, but there is also a place to recognize 
that uh, we have the sacred mysteries that are capable of transforming and converting the culture. If we simply and only adapt ourselves to the culture, instead of converting the culture, the culture can sometimes convert members of the church and draw them out. And so I would say a sort of healthy, holy, prayerful caution ought to be implemented and practiced when it comes to cultivating Eucharistic devotion and adoration among the young. I mean, God can write straight with crooked lines. And so if we're erring in the right direction, we ought to save our anger for, for I think, a worthier target. But uh, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit guide our audience on that matter. I, I, th I think you've got something there, but you know, this would be where the question ought to be taken just out of the next clever idea that, some, that popped into somebody's mind. But also go to the folks and see, is this attractive? Does the, this kind of lighting help you focus on the presence of Jesus? Or is it a distraction? distraction. That's a great point. And certainly in tradition, you know, having candles that are, you know, uh, we oftentimes put them in, you know, red colored glass that kind of mutes the light so that there can be that focus on Jesus and the Blessed Sacrament. And traditional elements like the use of incense to remind us, as it says in Psalm 142, 41, that our prayer goes up like incense. And we see in all the way from the Old Testament in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers uh, and Leviticus to the book of Revelation, that, that sense of that, that use of incense uh, helps us to understand the holiness of the place. It's set apart because that's not the normal smell. This isn't, you know, one of those commercial sprays. This is something set apart for the sacred. Um, pay attention to maybe using some of those traditional ways of identifying our church as a holy place. Uh, we've come a long way. I mean, there are places... We have a long way to go, though. I mean, candlelit silence with incense and with fitting music, Gregorian chant. I mean, you might be shocked, but I think young people will flock to that kind of thing because, I mean, you were saying before with, when we were talking, you know, if social justice is all the church is for, then join the Peace Corps, not the priesthood. Yeah. If, if rock concerts are the standard by which we're going to attract the youth, well, tell them to go to the concerts, but candlelit silence with incense. And Vatican II documents talked about the importance of, Lang, of Latin, as well as the pride of place being given to Gregorian chant. It doesn't have to be only that. Yeah. Polyphony, whatever other sacred music will lift the heart and the mind in this sort of manner. I mean, young people, as I said, are starving for transcendence and reverence. I can recall when Youth 2000 was introducing very large groups of teenagers and college students to Eucharistic adoration. Mm. Oftentimes, it was a muted, quiet kind of music 
that stilled their hearts so they could listen to Jesus. And with all of it, it's essential to remember that Jesus our Lord said in John 12, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, not when the lights mm. or sounds are up. We have a question here from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Uh, I'm local. I'm, I live in Leeds, Alabama. All right, just town next door to us. And what can we do for you? Thank you for this beautiful subject. You've mentioned holiness and holiness of place, but in reference to the Old Testament, can we still feel holiness of place and even sense holiness of objects? And you even had a warning with that, Father Mitch, today. Yeah. I wonder about my own feelings years ago before I came into the Catholic Church and I walked into the EWTN chapel for the first time. I was undone. Right. What did I feel? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my. I mean, uh, <laughs> I am resonating deeply with the questions, but also with your experience, too, because when I was a Protestant in search of the church that really fit what I found in sacred scripture in the early church fathers, you know, I, I went to an oratory. I wasn't quite ready for a whole Catholic church, but the oratory with the candles and the darkness and the silence and the tabernacle, I wasn't ready. I haven't gone to mass yet but I knew our Lord was there. I couldn't yes. exactly explain it. I still can't, but uh, I would say, again, we look back on the 60s, the 70s, and what they call the, uh, not the renovation, but the renovation, yeah, where they, they just basically turned churches into a kind of auditorium, you know? And you see that outside of the Catholic tradition, but you've also see it spill in here. But I would say that the time and the energy that is spent on making sacred places truly sacred and to inspire reverence in the hearts of all generations. So it's not just a nostalgia for the 50s. I mean, this fits perfectly with what with the saints and the popes have said, that if God was this meticulous and explicit about the prescriptions for worship, for the Aaronic priest, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, it isn't as though we've moved from something formal to pure informality. There is a sense in which what Jesus put into the Holy Eucharist and the holy orders of his own apostles to become priests of the new law. These are indicators that the voice of living tradition, if it's really heard, is going to lead us to um, the beauty of holiness and the holiness of beauty. I think too, bringing up, you know, the, coming into the chapel here oh, at EWTN, one of the things that makes it special is not just the candles and the, and the beautiful art and things like that. It's also the fact that people are in adoration of Jesus Christ in the chapel. Right. You know, and of course, when we had the sisters here, they were praying, you know, so when they could, around the clock. Right. And they do that up in Hansful. And the presence of people praying and adoring Jesus Christ is one of the components that makes a place holy. You can't That's the hard put one. your finger yeah. on it. You can't say, oh, it's that candle right. or that piece of art. You can't. But when you walk into a place where people are praying and adoring Jesus Christ, you tell. You can what tell. a difference it makes. And, you know, one of the 
policies, a lot of you watch uh, would know, uh, all of our employees have the chance to do a holy hour. We have the Blessed Sacrament exposed and we cover, you know, adoration. And part of working here, uh, we don't force the non-Catholics to do it if they don't sure. want to, but you know, everybody has an option to include in their workday it's schedule. An invitation, yeah. That you, huh. part of your task here is to praise Jesus. An hour of jubilee, of yeah. rest and prayer. And that because this, the network is based on prayer, that chapel depends on prayer. And I think that is a lesson for our parish churches. When you have so many people, and I'm not talking about the young people, and I'm not talking about the children. It's the old people, the kids my age, who are yakking their heads off before and after Mass instead of adoring Jesus. And I've had to rebuke lots of kids my age to remind them, be quiet in church. You want to talk? There's donuts and coffee. Here you worship Jesus. And if that goes on, that will be felt as a holiness in the place because people are committed to Jesus. Yeah. I think that's key. Uh, amen. We have another question. Sir, where are you from? Well, originally from Maryland, and then I spent 20 years in the Republic of Texas, and Good now I'm you. here in Birmingham for the there past you year. There you are. Ain't so. you some? Well, and welcome back to Birmingham, Dr. Hahn. It's great and to be Dr. here. Dr. Hahn, you, you are a professor. You teach uh, young people, 18 to 24, undergrads and grads. And I'm involved with uh, Catholic Radio. I work Catholic Radio. And the number one prayer request that we get from our listeners is to please pray for my children, my grandchildren. They've left the church. And you mentioned earlier about the draw of you know, the traditional forms of worship that the young people seem to be drawn to. What can we do more to draw our young people back to the Holy of Holies, back to Holy Mother Church? Wow, great question. Thanks for that. You know, I, I think that you've already begun to answer your own question by talking about drawing them back to holiness. Um, not everybody's going to be ready to respond, but I think we're going to be surprised after we pray, after we catechize, that the most effective form of evangelization that takes place in the family is going to end up being discovering the family of God mm -hmm. and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And that involves holy Eucharist, that involves holy orders, but I think we, 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 when we experience this at whatever age, we recognize, again, this is not just Catholic doctrine, it's not just Catholic talking points. I think we have grown so accustomed to transubstantiation, to the doctrine, and to affirming the mystery that it's only when we end up being transformed by the sacred mysteries that we recognize that this is almost too good to be true that we have the resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity of the creator of the universe. And my own son can speak these words over earthly matter and transform bread and wine into Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity for the purpose of transforming sinners into saints. I mean, holiness is the only thing that makes sense out of everything. And it's amazing to me how unamazed we are 
at the Holy Sacraments, at the Holy Eucharist, and all of these things. And so we don't have to kind of get into marketing and finesse our way to conversion. What we have to do is like what Spurgeon said, you don't defend a lion. You let him out of its cage, he'll, do, he'll take care of himself. Yeah. And I think that the Holy Spirit is waiting to be released and to show that the living tradition that lives in the liturgy most especially is going to be the single most powerful agent of conversion of all. We have one more caller. Sal from Staten Island, New York. What can we do for you this evening? Good evening, Father. Earlier you were talking about love of family and love of God. And I want to know, how do I know I love God the right way? Or when I say I love God, it's just not lip service. Great. Great Thank question, you. Sal. Thank you, Sal. I mean, this is, this is a really practical question because you never read about the saints looking in the mirror every morning and saying, yep, much holier than yesterday, you know. <laughs> there really is a sense in which we can't stare at our own face and take our own temperature and say, am I loving in more of a holy way? We've got to, we've got to look upon the face of Christ. Yes. And in the Holy Eucharist, that blessed sacrament. But my wife is also a blessed sacrament. She can be a cross at times, a much smaller one than her spouse can be. But at the same time, I think what we've got to recognize that holiness is not something that we can measure on our own. If holiness really belongs properly to God, then what we want to do is to belong wholly to God and to read the scriptures, to pray every day, to do the holy exercises that will then become the means by which we grow. But ultimately, it is not a self-made person. No saint is that. No. And they'll be the first to let you know that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they don't, they don't like to to think of themselves as holy. I think, you know, that you, you know, focus on God rather than on whether, on yourself. Keep looking at Jesus. And like the way that he corrected his apostles, he'll be on your case when you need it, but focus on him. Take time in daily prayer, especially before the Blessed Sacrament. And when you think about yourself, get to confession. <laughs> uh, there you go. We got to go, I'm afraid. Oh, it's Thank you for fun. being here. So Again, fast. Scott's book is called Holy is His Name, The Transforming Power of God's Holiness in Scripture. And you can get it at EWTNRC.com where it is item number A297. A297. Thank you for being with us and for sharing your son with the church. And may the Lord bless you and all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We can bring you Scott and all of our other guests and all of other programs only because this network is brought to you by you. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you.